0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to probably the biggest episode of Generation Elect that I have certainly ever done. Today on the show, I'll be interviewing Doug Jones, a United States Senator from Alabama from 2018 to 2021, a distinguished legal attorney and one of my heroes in politics. The Senator served as the US Attorney for the Northern District of Alabama during the Clinton administration, where he most notably led the successful prosecution of two KKK members for the murders of the 1963 Birmingham church bombing, one of the most legendary cases of recent times. Senator Jones later entered the 2017 Alabama special election for U.S. Senate, and although his campaign was originally quite a long shot, a series of controversial events and allegations surrounding his opponent, Roy Moore, and increased Democratic momentum were factors that allowed Jones to win a stunning upset victory for the Democratic Party in Deep Red, Alabama. In the Senate, Doug Jones served on several committees, gained a reputation for working across the aisle, and then lost a bid for re-election in 2020 to college football coach Tommy Tuberville. Since then, he has returned to his law practice and has joined CNN as a pundit. I am so honored and so excited to welcome Doug Jones to the podcast. Sometimes I need to turn off my camera to compensate for that, but I think we should be good. Um, so, yeah, so uh, this means so much to me. Thank you so much for being on. I've always wanted to talk to you, and it's such an honor. My pleasure. Um, So yeah, uh, so I guess we could just jump straight into things. Uh, Your time in politics and in the Senate was a very, very interesting spot. You were a Democrat representing the Deep South, uh, the first to get elected to the Senate in, first Democrat to get elected to the Senate in Alabama in a quarter century, uh, making it a very stunning result when you were elected. Um, This was a state that is one of the, that is and was one of the reddest in the nation. And you won there in 2017, uh, right after I voted for Trump overwhelmingly. So uh, what do you think you did right or differently? to get that result in Alabama?
1: Well, I I think it was a combination of things. I think it was uh, the fact that there was, it was a special election. So I was the only thing, the Senate race was the only thing on the ballot in Alabama. It was the only thing going on in the country uh, politically at the time. And I think that that allowed uh, people to really focus on uh, issues and individuals as opposed to just parties. Alabama is a very tribal state and there's a lot of straight ticket voting. In Alabama, you can, you can mark one place on a ballot and vote for every Republican or every Democrat. And a lot of people do that. And so with it just being, on the, just being the one election, um, folks that were gonna vote knew a person they were gonna vote for, not necessarily a party. That helped a lot. Obviously I ran against a very flawed candidate that the Republicans nominated. Uh, that helped. But also, I think that, you know, there was, um, you know, this was a year after President Trump was elected. There was a sense of, you know, what are we going to do in the South? What are we going to do in the country? And I had, was fortunate enough to have built a reputation in Alabama, not in uh, political office, but in other ways as a lawyer, as a prosecutor, that gave me a good platform. And I think people just were ready. Uh, in this state to hear a different voice, an authentic voice that talked about uh, issues of what I called the kitchen table issues of jobs and the economy and get away from the cultural issues that had divided Alabama for so long.
0: Yeah, so for people who don't know, you obviously had a very established reputation and and strong footing in Alabama. So uh, tell us a bit about your background leading up to that, that gave you that sort of platform that people knew you and elected you as someone they could trust to represent the state. Well, you
1: know, I I started my career as a lawyer, uh, actually in the United States Senate, working for Senator Howell Heflin from Alabama. It was a long time ago, 79 and 80, uh, working on the Senate Judiciary Committee. And that was really an awesome job. I mean, I really thoroughly enjoyed it. It was, a, it was amazing to live in D.C. Uh, as a young staffer. I came back as an assistant U.S. attorney, a federal prosecutor, was in private practice for 13 years. A state as an AUSA for four, then went into private practice in Birmingham uh, for 13 years. And I was really uh, fortunate enough to have uh, President Clinton. Uh, nominate me and the Senate confirmed me as US Attorney for the Northern District of Alabama, which is almost the northern half of the state. We got three districts, but the Northern District is about half the state. And, and in that capacity had a lot of interesting things. And one of the things that we did was to go back and reopen the case of the 1963 uh, bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church here in Birmingham that killed the four young African-American girls. Um, and I successfully prosecuted, I was the lead lawyer I wasn't just the U.S. attorney. I was the lead prosecutor, was in the courtroom uh, leading the trial team uh, on both of those cases. And that really was a big thing uh, for this state, for this community and for the state. And it really put my got my name out there. And people uh, know that I I meant business when it comes to civil rights and equal rights and social justice. Uh, And so, you know, I left in 2001, uh, 20 years ago uh, this month. And he started a, a practice in Birmingham where I continue to talk about those cases, continue to speak out about the, the same issues um, around the state and stayed involved and stayed engaged. And this just opened up when Senator Sessions was appointed attorney general. This seat just opened up and it was just time to make a move.
0: Yeah. And it was your background is really fascinating. Um, and when you decided to make that move in. Um you lost your campaign at the beginning of 2017, correct? Because the election was...
1: Yeah, well, uh, it was in yeah. May. Um, you know, they, they had actually were, after Senator Sessions became Attorney General Sessions, the governor, the then governor uh, called the special election for the, at the t- same time as the statewide elections, which would have been in November, 2018. But that was not consistent with state law. And that governor ultimately had to resign because he was going to be impeached. And the new governor, who's our governor now, uh, called, uh, moved the election up. And so it it was a really short window. I, she called that election in mid-April for August. You know, we have primaries here. So the primary was gonna be in in mid-August and the election in early December. And so that's a pretty short window. And I announced my candidacy in May, I was fortunate enough to win the primary against seven opponents with about 66% of the vote. And then we were just rocking and rolling throughout the fall, getting ready for the December 12th election.
0: Was it the perception when you started that race that it would be quite a long shot? Because of course, as you were saying, you know, a, there was a lot of drama and controversy that emerged as the general election went on, particularly surrounding your opponent. So when you... And, I think the perception was uh, that you wouldn't even be facing Roy you would be facing uh, Luther Strange. That was He was another contender for that. He, he was the senator, right? So yeah, he, the perception that he it had would been be appointed. Yeah, so was the perception when he started off that this would be quite a long shot, or did you see a path to victory that from, from day one almost?
1: It, it was both. I mean, it was still a long shot, but we knew the demographics, and because it was a special election, we saw a path. I think that Senator Strange had uh, some issues that we could have exploited. Uh, He would have been very, a lot tougher to beat than Roy Moore. But we also believed that there was a good chance that Roy Moore was going to be the nominee because it was a Republican primary in which you didn't have very many people voting. And the base of support that he had usually turns out to vote. So we saw that we had a, a path to victory any way it went, but it was a narrow path. And it was still a long shot. And, you know, the point of the campaign was not just to win. I mean, that was the objective. But the goal was also to just build a a party, to build a Democratic Party, some to give folks a voice uh, that they hadn't hadn't had a voice in a long time and to do things to try to help build for the future, uh, even if we weren't successful. So we 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 knew we we knew it was a long shot, a hell of a long shot. Uh, but we we did see a path, and that path just seemed to get wider as the campaign went on.
0: Yeah, and that's something that I've always been curious about, like, just in general, when, say, like, a Democrat runs in Wyoming, and, like, there's not even a prayer that they'll win there. Is the, so the motives sometimes you're saying aren't always, like, I'm going to get this, like, one in a hundred chance, this long shot, I'm or is a lot of these running in deep red areas to try to build infrastructure and be successful, like, Decades down the road,
1: it, it really needs to be that. It needs to be building infrastructure. It needs to be giving people a voice. It needs to be giving people a reason to turn out to the polls, even if their candidate loses. And um, so, I think that there has not been enough of that in the South and in these uh, in the states that have gone uh, so Republican over the years. Uh, and and unfortunately, what we've seen is that when When Democrats have started losing, they just kind of gave up and they didn't run good candidates. Uh, They didn't field candidates in many races. Uh, And and so it kind of perpetuated the problem. And so now these states, it's a really difficult time finding good candidates to even get out there to run because they won, they know that the odds are overwhelmingly that they're going to lose. And not a lot of people can afford to run a campaign. And um, just out of principle. And you got to do that. You've got to run to run again, either yourself or for somebody else. And you got to start building the base. That's how, and I was just going over some things because we're starting a, a couple of things in Alabama and the South, looking at how in Georgia they built this up over 10 years. This was not something that Stacy did just overnight, this was something that started building. Uh, in 2014, and 2016, and 2018, um, and and it came home in 2020, and I hope they can replicate that in 2022. But that's what I think we've got to do in these states. We've got to we've got to take a long term view, not just a short this election view.
0: Yeah, and that's that's really interesting, and I'm glad that you guys benefited off of that kind of infrastructure being built in Alabama. So, of course, when it um when it uh, happened that you were elected and you were sworn in, it certainly created a fascinating uh, situations and parallels in the state. You know, you were you were solidly a Democrat and you were the senator for uh, if you look at the polls of uh, the views of Alabamans, uh, of people from Alabama on the issues, um, it tends to skew conservatives. So were, were the dynamics interesting between you who had sort of different policy views than the majority of the electorate in Alabama um, like on town halls and everyday interactions with your constituents, was that an interesting factor? That I mean, sure. you're not every like you were probably one of the only senators that kind of had that uh, had that factor. In yeah,
1: of- no, I, it was it was fascinating, and we tried to work that a little bit. You know, when I first got elected, we started doing town halls, and I finally complained to my staff that only only my friends were showing up, and I needed to have folks coming that had a different viewpoint that wanted to ask me about why I did certain. Uh, voted a certain way, or what are my views on a certain thing coming up? And so we made a point later on of trying everything we could to get a more diverse group of folks there politically. But it was, you know, my my, my thought had always been that you know folks that hold public office are public servants, and part of the job is not to just simply justify your own election, but to listen and to learn. And, and also help educate, because there were so many people that I talked to that had a point of view that when I gave them more facts, started rethinking that point of view, because they just had not been given those facts. I think it's a big problem in today's world of both media and social media. And so it was it was always a challenge for me, but it's one I really enjoy. It, it helped me develop a, a, a position in the Senate that I thought was consistent with what Alabama folks really wanted and needed. Um, but it was, you know, it got consumed sometimes by issues on impeachment and j- Supreme Court justices. that Those just overshadowed all the other good things that you did.
0: Yeah, yeah. you bring up an interesting point about how, you know, talking to people who are, live in bubbles sometimes, both on the left and the right of, you know, living near people who agree with you, watching media that agrees with you and only kind of feeds feeds your own viewpoints. So, whose fault do you like what uh, what entity's fault do you think it is that, you know, these echo chambers and these bubbles have existed in solidly red states and solidly blue states and how can you promote, you know, ideological diversity inside those states to create an openness? Oh, yeah.
1: I don't think there's any one group or, or a point of view that you can right. point to that's created these ec- these silos. Um it it is evolved uh social media has I think made it so much worse. Uh, Social media is such an incredible tool, a positive tool, but it's also got a dark side where people can just stay uh, hidden away and they don't even know if their information that they're getting is accurate or not. And that's a huge, huge problem. Uh, Breaking through with that right now, I think is gonna be a real challenge. Um, And it's not gonna happen anytime soon. So it's been a problem that has been developing over time. Uh, It's a problem that we've got to try to figure out going forward. But I really think it has to do a lot with just messaging and trying to get people to stand up and speak out about what's right and what's wrong and not just the politically astute thing to do. You know, we need more profiles and courage who are willing to to talk truth to power instead of just trying to maintain power. And I think that that's an important piece of this. It's not it's hard to find in Washington, D.C., and in state houses around the country.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so there were some interesting points you made about talking about uh, your relationship with the constituents and the kind of policy overlaps about that. So do you think that, like, I mean, I'm in New York, a solid blue state. Uh, Do you think that if you were representing a place like New York or California, where the you know the opinions of the issues of the constituents do you think you are, are vastly different than you know the constituents that you represented in Alabama do you think you would have done things or differently in the Senate or taken a more liberal approach or uh, was there some sort of conforming or some pressure that you had to have to because you were considered a moderate in your party was that a choice or was that like um representing your constituents directly through that
1: no it, it was it's just it, it is who I am yeah okay it wasn't a It wasn't that kind of choice. I ran on who I am and basically said, you know, this is who I am, this is what I think. If you like it, please vote for me. If not, okay, it's okay to vote for somebody else. Um, And so I, I, for me, and this is maybe different than a lot of people, I I, I ran on who I am and not necessarily on what somebody wanted me to be. Mm -hmm. um, And I didn't mold, I told my campaign staff. I told my Senate staff, let's look at all these issues. Let's research these issues. I'll tell you what I'm thinking, but argue with me. Let's come up with what we believe is the appropriate position on all these issues. I said, but when you're doing that, and again, this is both campaign and the Senate. When you're doing that, never tell me that from a political standpoint, Doug, you need to do X. That didn't enter into my thinking. Uh, I'm, a, I, I'm what I consider to be a fairly moderate yeah. uh, a public official, uh, politician, whatever you want to call. Um, but to some folks in Alabama, I'm a wild-eyed liberal. But some folks in New York, I'm an I'm a arch-conservative. So it's all in the eyes of the beholder. And that's why I think it's important that people be themselves regardless. And if they can, can win, they can help educate people, they can learn and educate, and if they lose, they lose. But you need to be who you are. So it, it's not a question of what I would do different or uh, however, it's really a question of my, my upbringing, who I am internally, what my DNA uh, tells me to do and how to approach things
0: yeah, I totally agree. So, yeah, definitely one of the the hallmarks of that was bipartisanship. I think you were ranked in the one hundred sixteenth Congress the six the sixth de- the number six Democrat, most likely to cross the aisle and do work with Republicans, which is a good statistic. Um, do you think that bipartisanship resonated with the voters that a lot of them could tell that, You were someone who was willing to listen to them and work with Republicans on the other side and create those kind of relationships? (laughs) Well, I
1: I think it resonated some, but not enough. Right. Um, Clearly, I I had this conversation with some folks I, I spoke to earlier today, and everybody wants bipartisanship. Everybody will tell you, I want you to work with the other side. But when it comes right down to it, they don't vote that way. They vote partisanship in Alabama anyway. And, you know, what I learned is so many people said, you know, we we want you to work with the other side. What they really meant was we want you to do, we want you to come over and just vote with the other side all the time. And, you know, I wasn't going to do that. So it, it, I think that people uh, appreciated the fact that I did do it, but at the end of the day, there was not near enough people appreciated it enough to vote for me.
0: Yeah. Do you think then that bipartisanship, just the idea of doing it just for the sake of bipartisanship, do you think that's a bit overrated that people that, especially in a time when, I mean, not to get too specific, but the Republican Party has kind of, has gone to the extremes to say the very least. Do you think that Democrats right now should be focusing on a more insular message that we don't need people who deny the results of elections? To, we don't need to work with them and make that a priority. What do you think is the best way to approach that?
1: Well, I think the best way to approach things in the United States Senate is to try to find common ground. You know, uh, because the great legislative accomplishments uh, in our history was done by finding common ground and having people on both sides of the aisle vote for something. Um, It's a challenge sometimes, but I don't think, for instance, you know, you've got fifty Republicans in the United States Senate. Not all of those Republicans believe that this election was stolen. They don't believe the big lie uh, that people talk about with regard to, to Donald Trump. They don't, they just, they, they're not cut out that way. But they're conservative, and they're looking for a more conservative agenda than what President Biden probably wants to do, wants to put forth. So here's, a, here's a, some interesting concepts here. Bipartisanship, for the sake of bipartisanship, can be a good thing because at the end of the day, it's still bipartisanship and you still get things done. It, it, it's preferable to be really genuine, but in order for that to happen, people have to understand that you can't get all everything you want. And that doesn't mean you compromise principles, but it does mean that you find common ground on things and maybe just allow certain things that you don't particularly care for to go forward, While you, on the other hand, can get some of your agenda put forward as well. I I think that that's the way the Senate is supposed to operate. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be operating that way, although there are some opportunities. Um, Listening to NPR just before I got on with you today, they were talking about even another um, meeting with the president and Republicans about the infrastructure bill. They seem to be getting closer. It is not near what President Biden wanted when he first proposed it, but it's also a heck of a lot more than what Republicans said that they would accept. That's kind of the way things are supposed to work. Yeah. And so, you know, it's it's you, you, you're probably a little too young. You're quite too young to remember. But I kind of subscribe to the Mick Jagger School of Politics, which is the song uh, with the lyrics, you can't always get what you want, but if you try some time, you just might find you get what you need. And we need to have more people on both sides of the aisle working to get what they need, not just what they want.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good principle for sure. Um, I, I've heard that a lot from my parents when I was very young. Um, <laughs> talking, about, um, talking about the dynamics of the Senate and, you know, as you talk about the bipartisanship and compromising. I am really curious to hear about what it's like in the dynamics of the Senate and like the relationships of the chamber. Because we it's very from, from an outsider's perspective, like it's very hard to know, like our party labels a facade and is everybody friends in the Senate? Or is it actually kind of hard to talk to somebody who ideologically is the opposite of you? And there's really there is polarization within the members of the body. Like, what is it like in the Senate?
1: Yeah, it, it's a little of all of that, to be honest yeah. with you. People are friends. Um, it, it, at least they were. Um, I, I was up there recently and uh, had, I had met with friends uh, on both sides of the aisle, and they independently were telling me that the atmosphere is more toxic up there now than it's ever been, that they've ever seen it. Uh, but, you know, I enjoyed uh, folks on both sides of the aisle. Uh, we did a number of things, I sponsored a lot of legislation with Republicans. They sponsored legislation with me. Uh, there was a lot more that went on behind the scenes that people don't get to see. Uh, right now, you look and you see dueling press conferences. You see political floor speeches. And you don't see the work going on with the staffs trying to hammer out a bill. You don't see the work uh, with the senators on the floor or, or at committee or whatever uh, trying to work to try to find that common ground. There's a There has been a fair amount of that. That has gone on that the public just doesn't see, and that's unfortunate. Right. Because if the public could see that, then the public might not be as partisan and would understand the way things are uh, are, are going. What they see is this the rancor, and that's unfortunate. But uh, I, had, you know, uh, there there were certainly members of the U.S. Senate that I just, you know, I knew that it was no point in me working with. Okay. But there were very, very, very few of those. Um, because it really depended on the issue. For instance, you know, Senator Tom Cotton, you know, Democrats hate Tom Cotton, okay? And I don't agree with him on most everything. But Senator Cotton was on the banking committee with me, and there were certain things that on that banking committee that he and I were able to accomplish uh, together, including an an update of of the country's money laundering laws. That we were able to get through—that was a big deal. That was a big piece of legislation, with somebody. So, um, you know, there's a there has been a lot of work, bipartisan work going on. I think it's less so now than it was when I was up there, and I haven't been gone but for five months.
0: Yeah, for sure, for sure. And being in the Senate, you know, having all these and interacting with, you know, probably like 99 other of the most publicized and the most uh, talked about men or men and women in America is that is being in the Senate sometimes like a stressful job because I know for many people it's like a dream a dream job and it's I'm sure it's very it has very rewarding and it's very cool to have that kind of responsibility but is it sometimes sometimes a lot, and um, like, what what's it, what does it feel like to be a senator and have the media spotlight on you? And you know, you're it's different than the House, I bet, because right, it's like 435 votes versus 100, where every vote really matters. So, what what are those dynamics really like?
1: You know, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time. It, it it was could it be stressful? Yeah, the 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 schedule was really tough. Yeah. You know, because as soon as I got up there, I was having to run again uh, in three years. So, you know flying in on Monday, flying out on Thursday, coming home to raise money, to get to campaign. You know, that's a really, the schedule is probably the most grueling part of the job. And there are times that things get pretty stressful. The Kavanaugh vote was an incredibly stressful time. So much pressure. The impeachment was a stressful time. Um, but it was stressful in part, but not because of the pressures on anybody but yourself. That you wanted to make sure you get it right. You know, you work hard, you put in the time, spend so much time on issues, and you want to make sure um, that you get it right. Um, I, I I was an old history buff and a political science major, and so I loved being there. I, I started my career in the Senate, and to be able to walk on. To the floor of the U.S. Senate, uh, where I walked off with my boss, Senator Heflin, some, you know, forty years earlier, um, close to it, and uh, to be able to walk back on and to take his seat was a real special and time. And when I was sworn in, you know, um, a, a former a former senator and former VP named Joe Biden escorted me in, you know, to 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 get sworn in. And I, I was asked all the time by younger folks, what is the coolest thing about being a senator? And my answer is always said, just being a senator, just being part of that history, being sitting at that desk that got ransacked you know, on January 6th, which was incredibly, I wasn't there, thank God, but sitting at that desk and looking across the floor and seeing my colleagues and knowing all the history that had gone on there, opening the drawer to see the names of the senators, who had carved their names into the drawer that had used my desk. I'm sitting at a desk that John Kennedy sat at, that Harry Truman sat at, that Hubert Humphrey sat at, Ed Muskie, all of these incredible historical figures. It is a sense of awe. It is a sense of awe and a sense of responsibility.
0: I'm sure that must be amazing, yeah. So right now, I mean, the Senate is really encapsulated with one question and I'm sure this is going to be interesting. Um, Right now, the filibuster debate is probably the most raging thing going on in the Senate. Uh, you have probably the majority of the Democratic Party, except for um, except for the two most publicized, are Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. Um, but uh, it seems like the Democrats really want a concerted push to abolish the filibuster, which would make passing legislation uh, with simple uh, majority rule much easier for them. Um, what was your relationship with the filibuster in the U.S. Senate? Because you were in the minority, uh, I believe, in your whole time in the Senate. And uh, if you were still in the Senate now, what would be your approach in this debate toward it?
1: Well, look, uh, I think it's absurd the way the filibuster has evolved. But it's not because of the filibuster itself; it's because of the way the rules have evolved. The filibuster used to be a tool that people stood on the floor and they argued and they debated and you couldn't take, get off of that floor uh, at all. Uh, that was a filibuster. It was the talking filibuster. You had to hold the floor in order to do it. Now you don't have to do that. So it it became to a point where the the, the, the so-called filibuster, it wasn't really cutting off debate. The, the filibuster in today's Senate simply means that legislation has to pass with 60 votes. That's essentially what it means. And historically, that has never been the case. Historically, filibusters were used to Uh, on major pieces of legislation. It was reserved for major pieces of legislation in which people had real hard heartburn about it. And the filibuster was used to continue debate. You tied up the floor, okay? You couldn't do anything else during that time. And and a number of things happened. Number one, the senators who were doing it got tired and gave up, or uh, they worked out a deal there was so much during a filibuster at the time that that deals were cut um, or or three. Finally, the proponents of legislation would give up. But more often than not, something got accomplished. OK, yeah. it, it worked the way it was supposed to. But that was at a time when the Senate was working the way it was supposed to work. And it's not right now. The Senate is not this great deliberative body. You don't have to hold the floor on a filibuster. You, don't, you can carry on other business. So it's essentially a rule that allows, that requires a 60 vote majority to pass legislation. I don't like that. I'd like to see the filibuster changed to go back to the days it was, which would mean the Senate going back to the days uh, it was. And I think that that's where Joe Manchin and Sinema, uh, Senator Sinema and others are, that the Senate is supposed to be the the place for cooler heads to come together to try to make sure, because at the end of the day, Henry, at the end of the day, most every piece of legislation, the objective of the legislation is a bipartisan piece, you know, objective. Yeah. Good health care, voting rights, all those things. The objective, how to get there is the problem. So it seems to me that right now we're still at the early stages. Democrats are are too, they're just they, they want everything to happen too quickly. Things don't happen. In the Senate, that quickly things don't happen in the U.S. government that quickly. This president has only been in office just over four months, and you can't expect him to completely change the world in four months, especially having to had to deal with a pandemic and an economy shambles the way it was. So, I think just now you're, that the Senate is starting to look at things like infrastructure, voting rights, and the others. So, I, I think that if the Senate would operate properly, there is a word. But to operate properly, senators have to agree that they will work together to try to find common ground on major pieces of legislation. I think that that's happening on the infrastructure bill.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I think that that's actually happening. It's not on, it doesn't seem to be on voting rights. And I think that's, my view is that that's likely to be the real test uh, on voting rights because with what's going on around the country, if the Congress of the United States can't be the backstop to what's going on around the country, then I don't think con- any, any member of Congress has got any business being there. And so there, there, there may have to. But before before you just do away with a filibuster to, um, to just simply get the Democrats their agenda, you need to there needs to be a couple of efforts made to find common ground. They need to take H.R. 1 and and focus on voting rights and not all the other things that's in there, the ethics provisions and statehood and all that. Focus on what's happening around the country. See if you can get those 10 votes. If you can't, then consider doing something uh, with a filibuster. That has to happen before you start uh, tinkering with these rules. And I, I think that that may, we're just not at that point just yet we may be getting there relatively soon, but you know, Democrats have to also know this, what goes around comes around. And we Democrats have complained loudly, loudly, loudly about Donald Trump getting all these judges confirmed. Donald Trump got all these judges confirmed because Democrats decided to deal with a away with a filibuster for judicial nominations. And they couldn't get their votes in in time before Donald Trump was elected. And so here we are. And so be careful because Democrats think, you know, this is great, we can do all this. Everything they do can be undone, just like that without a filibuster. And they need to be careful. And so I think that's where Joe Manchin's coming from as well.
0: Yeah, and I very much see where you're at, inkling for reform of that. I've heard, you know, Reverting back to a system where you have to talk and you can't just enter it in on the record like they did on the January sixth commission a few uh, days ago. And then I've also heard the idea that instead of sixty to pass, you need forty to keep it going. Um, so you would need the it would, the burden would fall on the minority party to keep the filibuster going. Uh, so, but I feel like these reforms aren't being talked about at all. I mean, I follow the news cycle pretty heavily, and the debate seems to be very. Polar, just remove it or keep it. Why, why isn't like Chuck Schumer working with Kristen Sinema to like, you know, get those reforms passed? Cause that would certainly be an improvement.
1: Look, Chuck Schumer is working on this every day. He is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that not everything that goes on in the U S Senate is going to get publicized in the news right. as much as it is. A, it's a house of leaks up there. Um, this is something that's been talked about ever since uh, the uh, Senate fell to the hands of the Democrats and they worked the deal out for Chuck to be the, the um, majority leader. Yeah. So they're, they're doing that. And I think the warning signs are out there. And I think they're, they're, there's always a lot more going on that you will never see, even in today's media world, that you just never see. Um, but the most, what you do see is mansion, and what you do see is cinema, okay. And uh, so you just assume that there's nothing going on. But I think that there's a lot of discussions going on Whether they will be fruitful, whether they will make the changes, I don't I can't tell you uh, at this point. But I think the January 6th commission vote was a wake up call
0: yeah,
1: because I I really believe that that so many in the administration, as well as Joe, uh, Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema. I I really believe they are of the opinion that Republicans will work with them and get enough votes to do some things. The January 6th commission went down and they only got six, could have gotten seven. That was a wake up call for them. that, that, That if you can't get that on an independent commission, then can you get it on anything? The next big test will be infrastructure and I hope they try to bring up the January 6th commission bill again. I think they can find, they only need three more votes. They need to have everybody there, but they only need three more votes, and I think they can find it if they really work at it.
0: That'd be really nice. Yeah, let's talk about um, the most recent recent election cycle. With plenty of stuff to uh, plenty of food for thought about the Democrat strategy and messaging, and your and your your own race as well. Uh, most people agreed going into it that you probably had the biggest uphill climb of any incumbent in the Senate, uh, being in Alabama, uh, having to face reelection just uh, two years after you were. Three years after you were sworn in. Uh you did have a very active campaign though. Um, and there was a lot of grid pushes to donate to you and uh keep keep going there. So I sense that your campaign did not treat it at all like there was like it was a lost cause. So that there definitely was a path for victory in that race.
1: Yeah, it was a very slim path. We we knew that. And um it, it it got it got narrower as it got closer to the election because of the Trump surge. But you know, we we always felt like if we did the job. Um, if we could get the message out, I think you know. I, I think everything I say. Make sure you understand. I think that I think the die was cast that I was likely to lose that election, regardless. Not sure there's anything that we could have done. Maybe we could have narrowed the gap uh, more than we did, and I think we could have had the pandemic not hit. I think the pandemic actually hurt Democrats across the country because Democrats get out there, they knock on doors. They they meet people they do those things and you, when you are constrained it, you you can't do that you can't get that out there all like that so um, you know looking that that's Scout um, barking no. it's the the joys of pandemic Zoom hood I guess
0: by um, my dog as well yeah
1: <laughs> so we had um, you know we we did all the things that we could to try to figure out the best path. I I, I touched a lot of people via Zoom and via phone calls, but it's just not the same. And at the end of the day, the tribalism in the state of Alabama, Republican versus Democrat, you just could not overcome.
0: Yeah, for sure. I'm sure it was really, really challenging to run a campaign, you know, on a computer screen almost. Um, And what was it? I feel like other factors, though, like. You know, Democrats were really slated to expand the House majority to win Senate races in places like Maine and North Carolina and Iowa. You know, none of that happened. We lost a ton of seats in the House. and so do you think there was a messaging failure too? that? Uh, oh, for sure. So, yeah. So what do you think went wrong in what the Democrats were trying to sell to the nation as a party or maybe how the Republicans twisted the Democrats and the perceptions of the American people?
1: Well, first of all, they tried to, they tried to sell uh, anti-Donald Trump messages way too much instead of their own messages. Yeah. Everything, you know, these local races, these senators, everything was anti-Trump. That was one. Not everything, but a lot. We ended up, people said they weren't going to do it, that they, they were have positive messages, which they did by and large in 2018. Right. But in 2020, with Trump on the ballot, every it still seemed he sucked all the air out uh, of, of this. And people fell into that trap. That was a huge mistake. Second of all, Democrats don't do a good job of messaging, period. They just don't. that the Republicans are disciplined. They have their talking points. It doesn't really matter whether they're factually accurate or not. So Democrats across the board got hurt with defunding the police issues, socialism issues, and they never really fully were able to counter that, including me, I tried. But you, you never, you, you cannot, they never really fully uh, did that. And, and there was not enough forceful denial of that. And so the messaging did not work uh, for Democrats and candidates had to kind of carry it on their own. And I think the problem going forward for Democrats is that, you know, de- Democrats, in my view, don't play long ball. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not looking in the long view uh, for these things. They, they go from one election cycle to the next, looking for the next shiny candidate, um, which are important. OK, but that candidate, as we have seen, might can only get you one election. You got to spend time in these states and in these districts working with electorates and people and talking. In Alabama, we didn't have a Democratic Party before I got elected to speak up. We just didn't. Hadn't been around for 20 years. We worked to change that, but we didn't have enough time to build that party infrastructure to get that word out and to do the things necessary for 2020. We'll do better this coming time. We'll do better the next time. Because we're now beginning to see the long-term strategies. And I told my, my colleagues in the Senate, the Democratic caucus, after the election, if you start wanting to win these states that, that you haven't been winning, like in the South, like in the Midwest, you've got to work people from the grassroots up. You just can't run a candidate in there and think that they're going to overcome the tribalism. You got to plant the seeds along the way and you got to look down the road and you got to it's like a chess game. You can't look at just your next move. You got to look at the one beyond that, the one beyond that and the one beyond that. So that's what Democrats need to do better. And and we need to get young folks like you out to vote more. Okay. now I know you're too young to vote right now. Right. Okay. But we got to get younger voters. We are doing statistics and younger voters are not turning out to the polls. And we got to get those younger voters out so that when they're older voters, they'll still be voting the way uh, that we want them to. And we've got the younger voters coming in behind Mm them. We've not done a good job of doing that across the board, but particularly bad job in the South.
0: Yeah. And segueing from that young voters point, uh, some things that are popular with young voters, I I think we both agree that the whole, you know, defund the police rhetoric and all of the really extreme stuff that, you know, came out of a good impetus this summer, but, um, there was some stuff that definitely, uh, hurt Democrats by association. So when talking about, you know, the loudest voices in the party, sometimes people who represent areas on the coast or, you know, have a more liberal or progressive electorate to work with that, that, the kind of messaging won't hurt them. How do you do damage control in swing districts where that kind of messaging through association, you know, of socialism and of abolishing and defunding the police where that, that can be very damaging. How do you, is it even possible to do, to mute those voices in those swing districts or? You
1: know, I, th- I think it's possible. You probably ought to ask me that question in about six months, because we're fixing to start a project that's going to address those issues. We're going to start a research project in the South. that's going to address those issues and look at that. How do we get younger folks uh, to vote? How do we counter uh, the, the, the messages like this? How do we get people focused um, on kitchen table issues, on jobs, the economy, healthcare? Because Democrats went on those issues. We're gonna start a project on that because I don't have the answer for you just yet. Um, because I will tell you, it is very difficult when a, uh, uh, a state is as, or district is as tribal as Alabama is to um, get them off message, off the party and the social issues that have divided. But we've got these opportunities with younger voters. And when I say younger, I'm not talking about just the 18 to 21 year olds. I'm talking about under the age of 45. They're just not voting in those numbers. So you've got these opportunities to talk to them and get them engaged. We've not done a good enough job of voter engagement and letting folks know that their vote matters. Even if they vote for a losing candidate, that vote matters and is important. And I think Democrats have got to get that. So um, you know, touch base with me about this time next year and I might have a few better answers for you.
0: Awesome, awesome. Yeah, my last question about elections and you know maybe what went wrong in 2020 is a funding-based issue looking at the Senate campaigns, because there was a lot of Senate campaigns that Democrats wanted to focus on and wanted to think about. You had a lot of money going to places like Kentucky with Amy McGrath, and places you know that Democrats never had any chance in South Carolina and Kansas, and a lot of races. I would say maybe your, I would say definitely yours, and some of the other more competitive races were kind of ignored in that regard. Do you think there was an allocational issue that Democrats put money in the places shouldn't have shouldn't have
1: put in? in? Well, you're 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 striking at something that uh, is a real uh, bitter pill for me um, yeah. because I do think that I sold them that I said it before I said it going in, they've always had that history though. And that goes back to looking at a shiny candidate. Amy McGrath was a great candidate. She was likely never going to win in Kentucky. Right. right. Uh, not now, not now because we haven't done the work with the electorates and we put all the money into a candidate and not into the, the electorate. And so, yeah, I, I do think that there is an issue um, there uh, but that's going to take it's going to take a lot of work and money going into these states in the off years, yeah. you know, not election years, working the issues, working, you know, to try to build uh, an image. Because the Democratic brand in those states in Alabama, in Kentucky, in Iowa, um, the Democratic brand is not good. And so it doesn't matter what kind of good candidates you get, unless you can build up the brand, you're going to lose. And Jamie bless his heart in South Carolina Jamie was a Harrison was a great candidate definitely but he spent 130 million dollars and he got the democratic base out now he got more votes out than any democrat before like I did if we can keep those that's the challenge now is keeping those votes and getting those voters engaged that's going to be the challenge going forward so definitely
0: uh, that's a tough thing tough Tough thing to get right, but it's going to definitely pay off if it happens. Um, yeah. My last question is, since we're wrapping up, we're hitting the time. Um, my last question is, and I we ask this to every guest we have since we're a youth-oriented podcast, uh, we're run by high schoolers. So what would your advice be toward young people who want to have a career in politics and making policy and talking about politics and in, in the whole realm that you have? What, what kind of connections should they make? Uh, what kind of things should they pursue in higher education and beyond? What, what would your advice be?
1: Well, my first thing is you got to make the connection with yourself. You got to make sure you want to do this for the right reason. Yeah. Uh, if you want to do it just to, uh, to to stroke an ego to be a governor or a senator, then don't do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You'll you'll likely fail, or you'll be you know you'll be miserable. Right. Uh, this needs to be done for the right reason. You need to focus on issues that are important to you, and start working on those issues. Work in the communities. It's not a, just a question of connections and. Meeting and greeting people—it's really working. It's for—it's—it's it's getting a good education in whatever field you want to get it in. It doesn't matter. There's no one magic bullet for this. Yes. But what is important is to be who you are and yourself, and don't just basically modify and change because you think it's to a political advantage. Focus on getting something done. Focus on those issues. Work in your communities at the at the grassroots level on issues on candidates that you believe in. And that's how you start, and the rest of it will kind of fall into place. Because so many may think that now, and they get involved in it, and you go, like, oh, "This, you know, it's just not for me." Uh, let me let me do something different. Um, but those that do, they have to remember that politics is not about themselves; it's about others, and and holding political office is a public service. It's it's not; it shouldn't be uh, uh, just a job that you do whatever you can to keep. It's a a service to others, and that's the way people have to approach it. And I think if we had more people approaching it that way, we'd get a lot more done in this country uh, for everybody and not just whoever happens to be in power at the time.
0: That is great advice, and I completely agree. Um, Yes, that's about it. Thank you so much for coming on here. This is one of the most fun conversations I've had in a while, and I really appreciate that you took time out of your day to do this.
1: It's my pleasure, and uh, hopefully, we'll do it again sometime, okay?
0: I would love to. Have a good one. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Mm -hmm.
1: Bye bye.